Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a wonderful show for you today, this morning following the State of the Union, which I'm sure everyone <laughs> stayed up watching. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get your reaction to it, Oh Brianna. yeah, I have lots of thoughts and feelings coming up in my radar. Uh, but first, let's take Type on the highlights. President Biden delivered his second State of the Union, of course, last night, where he spent a good portion of the night sparring with some rather unruly Republicans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. Well, Biden spent much of the speech championing achievements of his administration thus far. Notably, the president also leaned into Americans' economic dissatisfaction, delivering a populist message on the tax code. The tax system is not fair. It is not fair. Look, the idea that in 2020, 55 of the largest corporations in America, the Fortune 500, made $40 billion in profits and paid zero in federal taxes? Zero? Folks, it's simply not fair. We have to reward work, not just wealth. Pass my proposal for the billionaire minimum tax. You know, there's a thousand billionaires in America. It's up from about 600 in the beginning of the term. But no billionaire should be paying a lower tax rate than a school teacher or a firefighter. Well, I mean it. Think about it. The opposition party, of course, found plenty to dislike about the president's speech. Here's Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And while you reap the consequences of their failures, the Biden administration seems more interested in woke fantasies than the hard reality Americans face every day. Most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace. But we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. Every day we are told we must partake in their rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols. All while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing there is. Your freedom of speech. That's not normal. It's crazy. And it's wrong. President Biden is unwilling to defend our border, defend our skies, and defend our people. He is simply unfit to serve as commander-in-chief. So I think this is very interesting. I agree with some of those criticisms that Sarah Huckabee Sanders laid out. I've been very vocal about the, the assaults on the First Amendment vis-a-vis -vis government federal pressure to social media companies and others with respect to COVID and other matters. But the interesting thing is, she was responding to a speech that he didn't give. Joe Biden did not give wokeness one iota of attention. He didn't uh, he didn't <laughs> promise to install a drag queen in every school in America. He didn't, he, he didn't talk about doing all those things. So the difficulty for Republicans, if they want to run against um, critical race theory and DEI and transgender activism and all of those things, 
Joe Biden is just a really bad foil for that approach because he doesn't, I don't think he convincingly seems interested in those things. He didn't talk about them at all. And, uh, and that's, uh, I mean, he talked about economic themes. In fact, he yeah. talked about themes that, that the Trumpian Republicans love. Right. And in fact, he talked about big tech and wanting to break them up using antitrust law. She paints him as someone who was actually sympathetic to that. Whatever, and this is what I get into my radar, whether or not you can believe what Biden was talking about is a whole other issue. But in terms of what came out of his mouth, again, you're right. She did not respond to a speech that he actually gave. And to be honest, I like drag queens, but the only drag queen that was actually in that room was put there by the Republican Party, and his name is George Santos. So the idea that they're making this all a big <laughs> hubbub about wokeness, I mean, she seems incredibly out of touch. She seems like she is not substantive and that her party is representing a, a whole host of unsubstantive issues. And frankly, that exchange that Biden had about Social Security and Medicare, when he got all of those boos and heckles from the crowd, not only did that undermine um, what Kevin McCarthy had said about how we're going to behave much more respectably and sensibly than what Nancy Pelosi did, ripping up the speech and doing the petty clapping and stuff behind Donald Trump. Obviously, that went right out the window. But Biden was actually able to leverage that moment into a kind of commitment from Republicans that they weren't actually going to cut those programs. So he says, OK. Great, you guys are booing cutting Medicare and Social Security. You don't like cutting Medicare and Social Security. Great, I'll hold you to that. I'm glad we have bipartisan agreement on this issue, and everybody stands up. It was and an clap. extremely effective setup. To, we just have to call a spade a spade yeah. here. It was uh, very well done by him. Yeah, I, I don't think it's it's not Sarah Huckabee Sanders being out of touch as much as Biden just being in touch. He's in touch, so she has nothing to. Again, you can go after university professors or activists, they're thing, but they're not, it's not Joe they're Biden. Not, and that has always and been, he didn't I gotta get much say, fodder there. that has always been the case. All, every, every claim and concern about wokeness has been a Republican politician picking on what a company does, like Disney, picking on what a individual, well, a lot of individual, individual does, or schools. These are not elected sure. politicians. These are, these are choices that parents are making where they're trying to criminalize parents who give uh, uh, gender-affirming care to their kids. They're trying to criminalize people wearing drag. But They're they trying to criminalize people who get abortion in this proposed ban, uh, national uh, federal abortion ban. And on the other side, on one side you have a bunch of federal, I'm sorry, you have laws that are being promulgated by Republicans. To I don't fully agree right? with that because... And on the other half, you have Democrats who won the culture war like per the Joy and Reed clip that we, mm -hmm. we played yesterday, yes, there are culture war victories, but you can't use laws to oppose them or else you look like the authoritarian one in the situation. I agree situation. with that. There are elements of this that are affected by uh, federal guidance, federal law. That was a big thing during the Obama years. Um, but the, the other thing I wanted to say is that he, he's not— um, you know, he, he's he's not right. He's not running on those issues. I think so. I think the main area where he pro he said something that opened himself up to hi charges of hypocrisy was when he slammed big pharma. So I wonder mm -hmm. what you. So conservatives made a lot about that. There's a lot of talk about well, if you're so against big pharma, so against enriching big pharma, you know, why have all these federal policies aligned with what's in the best interest of Pfizer, et cetera, et cetera? I think there they were on more solid ground because obviously there has been a lot of of law and policy coming out of the federal government that affects that sector and that is to the benefit of major pharmaceutical yes. companies and is skeptical on civil liberties grounds. Biden took more money from that industry, yeah. from the healthcare industry and the private and the insurance industry than anybody else in the race, and there's a reason why he's in office as a consequence. Uh, but again, the Republican attack falls a little short when Biden is in this moment saying, we want to cap the price of insulin, we want to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Those are 
policies that are too incremental and small for my taste, given the scale of our health care crisis. But if Republicans want their attacks to land on Biden's hypocrisy, they have to start offering their own affirmative programs as well. Man, are we going to actually have legislation come out? It sounds like there's <laughs> agreement between De Joe Biden tricked uh, Republicans into agreeing with him or something. Don't, don't or said get things too they excited. Already thought. I'll, I'll, I don't know what's going I'll, on I'll here. I'll throw some cold water on this in my radar coming up next. Dying to know what's on your radar today, Brianna. Well, Ravi, Democrats are claiming victory after polls show that 72% of viewers had a positive reaction to Biden's State of the Union speech last night. And as much as I consider Joe Biden to be a reformed segregationist and serial fabulist who architected mass incarceration and who has failed to use his executive authority to follow through on campaign promises while still finding the time to crush what might have been one of the most significant labor strikes in American history, it's worth noting what he did do right last night. Now, I've long argued that any politician could cakewalk to victory if they capitalized on the near universal hatred the voting public has for hidden fees like the ones levied for airport baggage, quitting gym memberships, using Ticketmaster to buy Beyonce tickets, or trying to switch service providers. And Biden did exactly that last night, honing in on Ticketmaster processing fees and big airlines who charge families $50 to sit together on flights. We can stop service fees on tickets to concerts and sporting events and make companies disclose all the fees up front. And we'll prohibit airlines from charging $50 round trip for family just to be able to sit together. Baggage fees are bad enough. Airlines can't treat your child like a piece of baggage. Americans are tired of being. We're tired of being played for suckers. He zeroed in on prescription drug costs, announcing a plan to cap the price of insulin. Medicare will also begin to negotiate the price of drugs with pharmaceutical companies. A policy 83% of Americans, by the way, approve of, including 71% of Republicans and 82% of independents. And a positive and generous move, Biden affirmed the hardworking nature of the American public and attributed low unemployment rates and economic recovery metrics to the industry and strength of Americans themselves, not claiming credit for his own administration. And he avoided critiquing Republicans on polarizing topics like one six, instead sticking to claims that they're attacking popular social safety net programs. And you know what? I think it worked. How do I know? Well, when Biden accused some Republican lawmakers of threatening Social Security, several conservatives in the chamber, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, shouted, jeered and booed. Ever heard the expression, a hit dog will holler? And I have to give Biden credit here. He handled the heckling fairly well. He responded with grace, saying he wasn't blaming all Republicans, just some. Moreover, he weaponized the booze against the Republican agenda, saying that he'd take the jeers as a sign that, okay, fine, you agree with me. I guess the social safety net policies are safe. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. All right. We got unanimity. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree, and apparently we are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. 
will not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Those benefits belong to the American people. They earned it. And if anyone tries to cut Social Security, which apparently no one's going to do, <laughs> and if anyone tries to cut Medicare, I'll stop them. <laughs> There's that old Biden charm. Look, he did a little economic populism, too, saying that capitalism without rules is extortion and advocating for antitrust legislation to rein in tech giants like Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. And finally, he called for a billionaire minimum tax, saying uncontroversially, I think, that, quote, no billionaire should pay a lower tax rate than a school teacher or a firefighter. The tax system is not fair. It is not fair. Look. The idea that in 2020, 55 of the largest corporations in America, the Fortune 500, made $40 billion in profits and paid zero in federal taxes? Zero? Folks, it's simply not fair. We have to reward work, not just wealth. Pass my proposal for the billionaire minimum tax. You know, there's a thousand billionaires in America. It's up from about 600 in the beginning of the term. But no billionaire should be paying a lower tax rate than a school teacher or firefighter. Well, I mean it. Think about it. But here's the problem. Remember that thing I said up top about Biden being a serial fabulist? In other words, a lying Biden? It's difficult to take this as anything other than misdirection when you compare this speech to Biden's record, not just over the decades he's been in Congress, but his record from just this last year or two, when Democrats had control of both houses of Congress and ostensibly had the power to, you know, enact some of these lovely policies Biden suddenly can't get enough of. Take the tax plan. Last year, Biden couldn't get Joe Manchin to agree to it. And in 2021, the alleged fiscal conservative said of a billionaire tax, I don't like it. I don't like the connotation that we're targeting different people. There's people that basically that contribute to society, that create a lot of jobs and invest a lot of money and give a lot to philanthropic pursuits, <laughs> like SBF, I guess. No comment on what Manchin planned to do in the alternative to make billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Michael Bloomberg, who in recent years paid literally no taxes, pay at least as much as their secretaries do. In his speech, Biden made reference to renewing the popular child tax credit that expired last April, expired because Joe Manchin was concerned that parents of those poor children would use the money to buy drugs. There's little reason to believe that happened, but what we do know is that the credit halved child poverty. Oh, well, sorry, kids, you live in a country that will protect you from drag queens, but not food insecurity or homelessness. By the way, one in 30 children in America the richest country in the history of the world, experience homelessness annually, one in 30. Again and again, when you go down Biden's list, you see policies that had a better chance of passing last year when Democrats had the votes, but which were sabotaged by corporate Democrats, perhaps with the endorsement of the party leadership, with surprisingly little fanfare or which were never tried in the first place. While Biden was quick to use his executive authority to crush a railroad worker strike, he hesitated to use it to cancel student debt, means testing the program and delaying its implementation so that conservative opposition could hang the whole thing up in the courts. Of course, that didn't stop Biden from using student debt as an applause line last night. 
And the crown jewel of all of last night's hypocrisy was Biden positioning himself as chief defender of Social Security and Medicare. Now, I'm old enough to remember how in 2020, Bernie, who assiduously refuses to put out negative ads, finally felt compelled to call Biden to the mat over lies he told about his record on Social Security. Remember this? The idea that Bernie implies the way he says things, speaking of negative ads, my Lord, Bernie, you're running ads saying I'm opposed to Social Security, that PolitiFact says is a flat lie, okay. and that the Washington Post said is a flat lie. Time and time again, talking about the necessity, with pride, about cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, cutting veterans programs. No. You never said that? No. Time after time, you were not a fan of Bull Simpson? I was not a fan of both. You were not a fan of the balanced budget amendment which called for cuts in Social Security? Come on, look, Joe, you won't. Look, here's the You're deal. You're an honest guy. Why don't you just tell the truth here? We all make I, mistakes. I, I, of course, Bernie had the receipts. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Well, we've got some bad news for them. We are not going to cut Social Security. We're going to expand benefits. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. Oops. <laughs> but receipts didn't stop Biden from lying. Apparently, nothing does. And it, this isn't just about Biden's past record. He's still threatening the very social safety programs he claims to be the savior of today. Now, to be clear, that's not to say that Republicans are offering any improvement on the mean as quickly as conservatives objected to Biden's call out over Social Security. Liberals started pulling receipts, verifying Biden's claim that at least some conservative lawmakers have, in fact, explicitly called to cut Social Security. Here's Senator Mike Lee on one side of the screen gasping incredulously after Biden accused some Republicans of wanting to cut Social Security. And on the other, Mike Lee saying he wants to get rid of it pull it up by the roots. It will be my objective to phase out Social Security, nice. to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Um, people who advise me politically always tell me that's dangerous, and I tell them, in that case, it's not worth my running. That's why I'm doing this, to get rid of that. Medicare and Medicaid are of the same sort and need to be pulled up. You see, Lion Biden might be an accurate nickname for Joe, but it's also a sentiment that could be applied to most of the chamber. If anything, George Santos is just the most creative liar of the bunch, not the worst. And that reality has left the American people ping-ponging between performative statements from Democrats and culture war invectives from Republicans. In her response speech, former Trump spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders leaned into the culture war hard, arguing that the right is under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. But that sort of message fell flat after Biden's speech, which, unlike his Trumpism speech from last fall, offered olive branches to Republican voters and lawmakers alike and focused on substantive a substantive economic agenda that has broad public support. Fundamentally, Biden's speech was good, and it charts an antidote for Democrats looking for a cure to the culture wars that have become a stand-in for substantive politics on the right. The problem is, at this point, it's not clear to me whether anyone will actually take Biden at his word. Even worse, I'm fairly confident 
they shouldn't. As much as I hope I'm proven wrong, Biden and the Democrats are hamstrung by a long record of empty promises and inaction. I'm glad the Democrats are in a position to veto, say, any anti-woke national abortion bans that some Republicans have promised to put forward as part of their war on popular policies with bipartisan support. But I can't think of that issue without remembering that Democrats failed to codify Roe for half a century, arguably intentionally dangling it as a carrot to coerce disgruntled Dems again and again to the polls, risking our reproductive freedoms for a cheap electoral win. Well, the first thing I do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. Uh, that's the first thing that I do. Now, the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. And despite how important it is to cap insulin prices, I can't ignore how hollow it is to claim modest improvements to Medicare drug pricing as revolutionary. Keep in mind that Americans pay more for health care than anyone else on Earth for worse health outcomes. But Biden's big idea is to cap the prices of one drug. Now, my fear is that doing so will have the effect of killing an important Medicare for all talking point without really doing anything to get at the root causes of our high drug costs, the for-profit pharmaceutical and health insurance industries, industries which both contributed heartily to Biden's 2020 campaign. Kamala tweeted about how grateful she was to be able to take time off work to be with her mother through her cancer diagnosis and advocating for paid family and medical leave, as she should. And yet Joe Biden just crushed a rail strike that was geared towards securing exactly that right for rail workers. Moreover, Biden could use his executive authority to guarantee rail workers paid sick leave. But I didn't hear anything about that in the State of the Union address. The Democrats' biggest problem is that they've taught Americans not to believe them. It's not just lying Biden, it's an entire deceptive Democrat party. If Democrats actually legislated the pretty words in Biden's speech, the electoral map would probably look like it did when FDR was running for president. As it is, well, Biden's stumbling and slurring gave me pause, real pause. However, I believe if he can hold it together with this kind of messaging, he will make it through in 2024. The question is, at what point are Americans going to get the fighter that we deserve? Yeah, I, I mean, I think politically, I, I agree with you. I, I don't, uh, unlike you, I don't <laughs> like a lot of the policy suggestions that Biden was proposing there. But whether I like them or not is different, or whether I think they're good policy is, is different. I've always said this is different from what's popular. I think Biden has a better sense of what politics are popular than a lot of people in either the rest of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Mm. And you saw a little bit of that, uh, that difference there as I noticed Republicans or conservatives reacting on social media and saying to themselves, wait a minute, Biden sounds a little bit MAGA here. Is he, He's stealing <laughs> Trump's good ideas. When really it's that Trump did frankly run as a different kind of Republican yeah. on entitlements while, while the rest of the party and the Tea Party days did want to do something about Medicare and Social Security, Trump said, no, that's stupid. Why would we do that? That's politically unpopular. And he has forced the party to really cave on that. So I so I mean, they've changed their, yeah. they, they don't want to do it because they know it's politically. Yeah, uh, I mean, the unfortunate. Wise, and Biden called them out for it. The unfortunate thing is that, of course, when, Biden, when Trump got into office, he did attack those social programs, just like when Biden was in Congress for the last 30 years or whatever, he did attack those programs. So this is, th my fundamental point is that, like, you know, kudos for figuring out the messaging, but there's something especially pernicious about politicians figuring out the right thing to say, 
knowing that they're not going to do it and having a record of having done, frankly, the opposite. And are we going to get to a point where the, the messaging runs out, it stops working? Mm -hmm. Because they've, they've literally trained the American people not to believe a word out of their mouths. And there are things that they could do to prove to the American people that they will put their money where their mouth is, like actually use your executive authority to pass legislation when you can. Use, you know, the idea that Joe Manchin can hold up an entire party's agenda, that there's nothing in the world that he could have been offered or that Kirsten Sinema could have been offered to get Biden's agenda through over the last two years, I think, you know, it, 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 it belies credulity. Like, no one actually could believe that's true. I think what you have is a rotating villain theory where Democrats hide behind these useful idiots to say, oh, we would have done this, we would have been good, we were the good guys, but someone was standing in our way. We saw this when Barack Obama had a, a 60-senator uh, 60 majority. He still was blaming Joe Lieberman for not being able to pass the yeah. bulk of his uh, agenda. So at a certain well, point, Democrats and Republicans alike, independents are all going to check out. I mean, well, well, look, whatever he's doing, it's working to some degree. It's working politically. And uh, he he's just coming out of a fairly successful midterms. Uh, he's absolutely going to run for a re-election. I don't think there's any real doubt. If anyone has any real doubt of that, I would, again, urge you to drop it. He will run for re-election. He'd be a fool not to. And Republicans are going to have to figure out how to make a case against him, against Joe Biden and Joe Biden's policy, because I agree, the case against Drag Queen Story Hour or whatever else <laughs> is, per, is persuasive. But that's not what you're running against when you're running against Joe Biden. So they have to, and if they agree or partly agree or halfway agree with his economic ideas anyway, then what are we fighting over? So yeah. it's, a, it's a challenge to Republicans to find an agenda, uh, an actual policy differences with Joe Biden if they want to be successful. And they yeah, certainly I, haven't done that I yet. I can see it now at the debates. Listen, Jack, I don't even know what a drag queen is, but one time I was drag racing my hot car in 1976. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. The president, it's his nature and it's his commitment to the American people to work across the aisle. That's not going to stop, even if some people are cynical about it. The, the problems aren't just inside that chamber, though. The president also facing a skeptical mm -hmm. public. Majority don't think they're better off since he took office. The majority don't approve of the job he's doing. Well, listen, there is no question, and again, the president spoke about this, and it, it's on his mind every day. People are still hurting in America. As he started the, his presentation last night, talking about the fact that we've come out of a, an historic pandemic, the economic crisis that resulted, supply chain crisis that resulted, you look at the cost of milk and eggs, you know, it's about four and a quarter, I think, on average in the country. So, yeah, people are still hurting, and we still have work to do. I think the president was clear that the job is not done. We brought down the cost of insulin for seniors to $35 a month. We're bringing down the cost of medication on an annual basis for seniors so that they'll be capped at about $2,000 a year. Um, we're dealing with what we need to do to bring down the cost of energy in terms of rebates. So a lot of good work has happened, but more work needs to be done. There's no doubt about that. That was Vice President Kamala Harris in a one-on-one -on -one interview with Good Morning America's George Stephanopoulos. Brianna, this seems to be Harris's first high-level media interview in a while. How do you think she handled herself? Look, I, I think she was fine. And I think that strategically it makes sense to send her out to the public after Biden has basically achieved a slam dunk in the, in the State of the Union address. There's very little to beat up on her for. She can kind of ride his coattails of victory, get her a little exposure, push back against some of the reporting that she's being hidden, that even people in her own camp are disapproving of her. I, I believe we talked recently about um, that profile 
that came out where apparently Kamala's team gave the journalists some contacts who would, they should reach out to to give like a, a complimentary view of Kamala's performance. And even the folks that she picked that were supposed to feed the reporter a complimentary view. They didn't. Were like, nah, I don't know about Kamala. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, she's she's been going through it recently. And I think this was a smart move to just let her get out there in an uncontroversial context, show her face, and remind people that she exists and that she is capable of saying a few sentences in a row without it being gaff-worthy. Gaff <laughs> Which doesn't seem like it would be so hard, but she has struggled with it in the past. I mean, look, in all fairness, the position of the vice president is not the easiest. They're often no. like tasked with nothing or tasked with the, you know, the, the 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 ugly hard things that nobody else wants to deal with. Giving her the border, like declaring that your president actually won the election. <laughs> Mike, Mike Pence, given the most horrendous task of any vice president ever, right? He declare did, I'm the winner. He's not signing up for round two, you know. Yeah. So look, I I I I I feel like uh, the border policy, giving her that was. Difficult? Could she handle it better? Yes. Do I think that she's the kind of person who seems like she's not especially interested in politics, that she doesn't necessarily read her binders in that kind of Trumpian way, that maybe she's not the most prepared for things or the most knowledgeable? Yes, 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 and yes. But, you know, she can do some morning shows. She acquitted herself well. And that's basically all she needs to do if Biden keeps um, landing these kinds of punches like he did last night. Mm. Well, here's a little bit more of that interview. Let's play it. Governor Sanders also made a point about the generational gulf. She's 40. President Biden just turned 80. Uh, looks like he's gearing up for re-election, but a majority of Americans, according a majority of Democrats, according to our new poll, say they don't want President Biden to run again. What do you say to them? I mean, George, I, I think that age is more than a chronological fact, to be very frank with you. It's about um, thinking about uh, whether we have in our leader, which we do in Joe Biden, somebody who is bold. I mean, think about it. it. What he has achieved in this presidency only two years in is historic in terms of the investment in infrastructure. We're going to remove lead from the pipes of America within the next nine years. Children for generations and their families have been suffering because of the poisoning, lead poisoning. We're going to lay and make sure that people have broadband across our country where we saw families that were driving up to the McDonald's to have access to the public Wi-Fi and what that did in terms of creating educational gaps for people who should be able to have full capacity. Um, so I don't think that, I think that what people want to know is what have you done? And when you look at what President Biden has achieved, what our administration has achieved, not to mention foreign policy, something you care deeply about and have worked on, um, I think you will see that we have a very bold and vibrant president in Joe Biden. You know, she brings up foreign policy there, which is actually a very light foreign policy speech that wasn't talked about a lot, the State of the Union. Uh, which maybe is a good move for him. I, I mean, I think Americans do care a lot about the domestic reality, the price of eggs, uh, et cetera. So uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders hit Biden for not talking more about China, 
Russia, et cetera. But the balloon in particular. I, I thought it was weakened <laughs> by making it about the balloon, yeah. which I, I feel like no one's going to even be thinking about a week yeah. from now. That said, uh, I'm, Americans, I think, have a lot of questions about the Biden foreign policy, uh, with especially with respect to our ongoing commitment to fund unlimited resources in Ukraine. Uh, the that's Ukrainian something... ambassador was at the speech and, yeah. got, and stood up for applause, and he did reaffirm our commitments there. We'll see what the public thinks of that. Yeah, I think the public has a lot of questions about how long this is going to go on, uh, whether it's worth it. I know the Republican base is increasingly animated by this. I suspect it's not just the Republican base and that this is not a winning issue for Biden. I, th I think he does... It's been a confused foreign policy because it's, you know he pulled out of Afghanistan, committed to doing that, you know, followed through on promises that his two predecessors had made, which was maybe signaling a, a more non-interventionist um, uh, philosophy. But then it, it's been very much out of the interventionist playbook with respect to Europe. Yeah, you know, are you just swapping one war for another, or do you have yeah. real um, commitments? I also think it was smart of uh, Kamala Harris to talk about those particular domestic issues. I know that sometimes. Folks in the Beltway, people doing our, our pundit thing, aren't necessarily as attuned to how salient issues like not having broadband are for an enormous number of, of people in this country. I know that it was something that came up again and again when we were on the campaign. I was on the campaign trail with Bernie. This uh, this um, pattern of people literally having to go to public places like McDonald's that have Wi-Fi or public libraries and sit in their cars so their kids can do homework. It's a, it's a real thing, and I think there there is it's it's wise for them not to only be playing to the beltway in these kinds of remarks. Well, Harris responded to critics who have doubted whether or not she'll be on President Biden's ticket if he decides to run again in 2024, which he will. Let's watch that. Joe Biden supporters said he had a great night, that he was on, yeah. he was firing on all cylinders. It's being described yeah. as a soft launch for the presidential campaign, which leads me to you, because I want to know how you're feeling. Your supporters are saying you personally are taking a lot of incoming. Will she be on the ticket? Will she not be on the ticket? She seems to be in a damned if she does, damned if she doesn't situation. How are you feeling about the job these days that you're doing and people's perception of you on the ticket? Well, let me first of all say, as the president has said, uh, he intends to run, and if he does, I'll be running with him. Um, as it relates to the work of being vice president, listen, I love the American people. I, today, for example, I'm going to be traveling to, to Atlanta, Georgia, to meet with a bunch of college students about the work we're doing on the climate crisis. We are doing, again, historic work that's about creating jobs, but also investing in a clean energy economy. Tomorrow, I'm going to be in Minnesota. Yesterday, I can convened a bunch of foreign policy experts around an upcoming trip, my second trip to Munich, Germany, to speak on behalf of the American people at the Munich Security Conference. There's important good work that's happening, and I take the job very seriously, and I'm honored to serve. Hmm. That's what she's supposed to say, and she said it. And, and she'll be on the ticket, because yeah. he, can't, he can't deal with the headache of trying to replace her. And, and replace her with who? Well, also, she's not that bad. Like, yeah. I, as much as, you know, it's fun to poke fun at her weird rambling sentences and stuff, Biden was also known as Joe Gaff Biden. You know, it's, it's, nothing, it's nothing new to have a slightly embarrassing vice president. So, you know, she's not, she hasn't done anything that really warrants stripping her off the ticket. She served her purpose. She made the ticket diverse. She's a youthful person who's sitting there in case something cataclysmic happens with Joe Biden's health. And... You know, why I know you and uh, the rest of the people on the left would be just thrilled to see him uh, swap her out and upgrade Secretary Mayor Pete to the vice presidency. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I would I be offended on her behalf because <laughs> as 
much as her politics are not my own, Mayor Pete's are antithetical to mine in a way that is much more sinister and purposeful, or as I think Kamala Harris just hangs out with the wrong crowd. If we had gotten our, 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 our claws into her earlier, she could have been a real contender, a real a real woke socialist contender. <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. More rising right after this. Lawyers representing the family of Gabby Petito have released a photograph showing Gabby's bruised face, purporting to prove that she was beaten and even possibly strangled before her then-boyfriend Brian Laundrie's interactions, her and, and Brian Laundrie's interactions with Moab police last summer. Gabby's parents are suing the Moab Police Department, saying they failed to sufficiently intervene while responding to a domestic disturbance call between Laundrie and Petito that took place just weeks before she was killed. Joining us now to break down this new update is senior national correspondent at News Nation, Brian Inton. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks so, for having me. For folks who, you know, regrettably, it seems like there's always a case after criminal case for us to talk about uh, so much tragedy going on. Can you offer us just a brief refresher on what, what happened here uh, with this case before we get into these new details? Yeah, just an awful, sad case. Uh, basically, Gabby Petito uh, went on this road trip with her um, then-fiancé, Brian Laundrie, uh, went across the country. Um, and, uh, you know, on social media, people were really interested because it looked like this amazing trip, but it turned out there was a lot happening behind the scenes, domestic violence, uh, and Brian Laundrie um, killed Gabby Petito, um, strangled her to death. Um, she was found in the Teton uh, National Park out in Wyoming. There was this massive search for her. He also disappeared, you probably remember. Um, and then eventually uh, he was found in a swamp in Florida uh, and killed himself. Uh, but there's just been like so much fascination uh, about the case ever since. And now this new photo um, has emerged. It emerged uh, just yesterday. So the photo is some evidence that they had had this interaction with the police prior to her death where, so the implication, right, is that the police should have been aware that there was actual abuse going on because she, lo she looks clearly like she's been, she's been the victim of physical abuse so that she looks like she got hit in the eye, um, and, and that they didn't do something about it then when, when they could have theoretically prevented her from, from eventually being killed by him is really an indictment of how the police handled this. Yeah, so basically that photo, um, we're told, is a selfie from Gabby's phone. Uh, that was taken just minutes before a traffic stop that happened in, in Moab, Utah. And you've probably seen the body camera video. There's body camera video from that traffic stop. It's really sad and hard to watch. Gabby's crying. Uh, but her parents are now suing the police department, basically saying that they handled the situation incorrectly, that they didn't identify Gabby as the victim, that if they had, if they had arrested Brian or if they had taken more action, uh, it, it may have saved Gabby because it was just two weeks later that she was murdered. Uh, and, and they're now trying to, to use this photo in the lawsuit to show, look, she had these injuries. They weren't as visible in the body camera video, but they were clearly there uh, because the photo was taken just, just minutes before the traffic stop. For those who haven't seen that traffic stop video, what was the nature of the stop? Why were, why were they pulled over? And what was the, what, what was the interaction like? What did the cop actually say to them? Yeah, so there was initially a 911 call. Again, they were on this road trip in this white camper van. They were in Moab, Utah. There was initially a 911 call because um, 
there was someone outside like a small grocery store who says that that they saw Brian Laundrie slap Gabby Petito. So that's mm-hmm. when the initial call came in. Moab police um, caught up with them in the van. Uh, and then you see this this video that goes on for quite some time where they're questioning both Gabby and Brian, trying to figure out what happened. They separated them. Um, and ultimately, it's interesting when you go through all the police reports, um, they, they determined that Brian Laundrie uh, was actually the victim in all of this. Um, but they didn't make any arrests. Uh, they separated them for the night. They tried sending Brian Laundrie to a hotel room in Moab, and they said that Gabby could stay with the van. Um, and this has all now been dissected because the, the family of Gabby Petito says it was handled totally the wrong way. And the Moab Police Department actually had an outside agency go back and review the video to see the way it was handled. And they also agreed that you know there needed to be additional domestic violence training uh, with that police department. On what did they base the finding that Laundrie had been the victim of domestic violence? Did he also have physical bruises on his face or anywhere else? So when they were interviewing both, um, you know, Gabby Petito at one point was was trying to say, oh, no, you know, it it, it wasn't his fault um, and, and was sort of like blaming herself. But if you talk to domestic violence experts, um, you know, that's very, very common. I mean, that's something that comes up a lot, which goes back to why the family believes that the police department handled it the wrong way. And again, when the outside agency reviewed it, when they recommended the additional training for, for the Moab Police Department, because th- those are warning signs that, you know, that most domestic violence experts would say, you know, um, a, a police officer should should be able to pick up on Hmm. Well, what what is the the state of this lawsuit against the police? I mean, is it a court date scheduled? What what is the timeline with that? Yeah, it's ongoing. Um, they're suing for fifty million dollars, um, and also I think just trying to make a statement here and trying to, you know, send a statement out to the whole country that that um, police departments need to be better trained. So so it's ongoing. I've been to Moab. I've actually interviewed the police chief there before the lawsuit. Now they won't talk as openly just because there's pending litigation, but. You know, I'm told that this has been a a tough time for those officers. I mean, obviously, they had no idea um, what was going to happen two weeks after that traffic stop. And there are, you know, domestic violence calls all the time and all sorts of things that they respond to. So, so, you know, they they had no way of knowing exactly the way this was going to end. So this has been a tough time for Moab police. That um, lawsuit goes on. And then there's another lawsuit in Florida. You probably remember um, Gabby Petito's family is also suing Brian Laundrie's uh, parents too. So there's these two sort of lawsuits happening at the same time. Is that lawsuit having to do with the the suggestion that they knew where Brian Laundrie was up until when he he uh, uh, ostensibly committed suicide? I, I remember hearing you know rumors that they had been in contact with him and were actually maybe aware you know what was going on with him. Yeah, exactly. That's right. They're basically saying that the laundry parents and the lawyer that represented them caused uh, pain and suffering because while this extensive search was going on and the parents were, were you know, so emotional and the whole country was looking for Brian Laundry, the parents claim, uh, Gabby's parents claim that Brian's parents actually knew all along what, what was happening behind the scenes. Yeah, this is such an interesting set of lawsuits. The domestic violence intervention question is one that has much broader application. Obviously, there's been an enormous amount of discourse and concern about the extent to which police officers 
are accused of not intervening sufficiently in domestic violence cases. There have been questions raised about what it means for, I think it's about 40 percent of police families that experience domestic violence themselves, and if that biases the, the, the way that they choose to interact and inter intervene um, when they encounter people other than themselves who are committing domestic violence. It's a, it's a very difficult issue. Um, have you seen a lot of local traction and interest in pickup here? Because it is also a much more, I think, divisive issue than the question of a young woman being uh, physically abused and killed, especially in a more potentially conservative part of the country. Yeah, you know, it's a really good point you make. I, I, ever since the beginning, and I was covering the story like from the very beginning, the domestic violence aspect has really stood out. I mean, when I was outside the Laundry's house for a long time, you know, victims of domestic violence, even before Brian Laundry was found and we knew what happened, were showing up to the house uh, to like sort of show their support for Gabby Petito's family. I mean, this story all along has really struck a chord with survivors of domestic violence. Even when that picture came out yesterday, I mean, it was heartbreaking for a lot of people who have been covering the story um, very closely. So. I, I think this domestic violence um, sort of angle to the whole thing um, ha has been among the most important. And again, going back to Gabby's parents, I mean, that's what they really want is is other police departments to learn from this because there's additional training that, that these departments can have where they can spot some of these things that are fairly obvious when, when you know what to look for. Um, and I also wanted to mention the domestic violence hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE. That's also something that's important to Gabby's family to continue to get that number out because obviously they wish they had known what was going on behind the scenes mm. um, with her. Um, and so, you know, and th this is happening all over the place. You know, you, we all have friends that we probably don't even know that are going through things like this behind the scenes. Mm, very important. Thank you so much, Brian, for shedding some light on this. We appreciate it. Thanks. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Former president and 2024 contender Donald Trump is upping the ante on his attacks against potential rival Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Trump took to Truth Social this week, posted a meme that alleges DeSantis cozied up to high school girls during his year-long tenure as a teacher at a Georgia high school. The picture he posted reads, here is Ron DeSanctimonious grooming high school girls with alcohol as a teacher. According to a report in the New York Times last year, DeSantis did a short stint as a history teacher at a private school back in the early 2000s, where he frequented senior parties and participated in debates and even played pranks on students. Apart from the personal nature of the attacks, Trump appears to be strategically positioning himself to take on DeSantis. According to Semaphore's Benji Sarlin, the former president is moving further to the right of the Florida governor when it comes to culture wars, basically giving himself carte blanche on those issues. Meanwhile, he is also carving out space to the left of his rival on entitlements, taxes, and maybe even abortion. This is the strategy that populists on the left have been concerned about for years, that there is going to be this unholy alliance between these far-right culture issues and left populism, economic issues. And Trump seems, seems to also understand that that is a wide-open lane with potential benefits. Well, he was—his first successful presidential campaign kind of hinged on him running in that direction. Um, these attacks on DeSantis are very interesting. I mean, they're, they're gross. They're just making up lies. Uh, and they 
I don't think are playing very well. I saw a lot of furious conservative reaction on mm -hmm. social media. I mean, there are there are some people who are just Trump ride or die who will defend everything that he does, and they're you know sticking to him when he does things like this. But people who are who like love Trump and love DeSantis and are sort of in sort of. They're going to go whichever with whoever wins. They like them both genuinely. I think are really turned off by this stuff because it looks like Trump is doing he's doing the work of the left or doing the work of Democrats or doing the work of enemies of the GOP to start attacking the, the person who is currently the most successful Republican right. political figure. Well, I think accusing um, people of being groomers is definitely the work of the right. <laughs> well, well, I'm I not a, your, I'm not a big point. fan of that uh, of that <laughs> smear for that reason. Uh, it's also worth noting that like. For anyone who says there, you know, there shouldn't, it's just all free speech and there should be no moderation on social media. So this was posted on True Social. Mm -hmm. What is a, let's say this was posted on a Facebook or a Twitter or something. How are they supposed to handle this? Like, you can't just, you can't just post like, it, it, like potentially defamatory, libelous claims about other people. A social media site might moderate that so they don't, I mean, they're, they're immune from some liability of that kind mm -hmm. because of Section 230. But that doesn't mean they have to just leave it up there to be like uh, background participants in a potential civil suit. Well, so also, you have to, like, you can't just, I, 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 don't, I don't know, if you, you, and especially conservatives who are really uh, want the, the press when they share things that are lies about conservative figures, they, they want them sued. I'm talking about, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, the Covington kids, those kinds of cases where they've said, hold the media accountable for saying lies about these things, sue them. When someone like Trump just posts <laughs> just a context-free, oh, look what, what DeSantis is doing here. That well, the thing is that Trump's kind of weirdly being careful about this, saying, could this be true? Hey, someone, someone show, show this to me. Is this yeah. really you? Oh, no, this, I, Ron DeSantis couldn't possibly be doing this, is how he frames all of these tweets, knowing exactly what he's doing, of course. Look, you, you raised a second ago this idea that there are a lot of people who like both of them, and that those are the folks who are getting caught in between and disappointed in Trump for these kinds of moments. I have been hearing this a lot, that people legitimately think that there's a possibility of Trump and DeSantis being on the same ticket. I, no. I spoke to a number of callers on my call-in show from Florida, and I heard this again and again. I was like, well, how are you guys, how are you guys processing the Trump versus DeSantis? And, and he said Who are the people saying over these? and over again. These Republicans? Yeah. Or independents. They say, oh, or maybe they're leftists who listen to me, but they have conservatives in their family and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And they say, people really believe that they're going to join up. And at a certain point, I think Trump can say enough negative about DeSantis that it completely undermines that possibility. But do you think there's any any world in which politically no. they realize it's advantageous for for them to do a double no. team? The, I, I don't think it is politically advantageous for either of them to do a double team. I don't think it's politically advantageous for Trump to have. Well, Trump is never going to accept DeSantis as VP. So the only way this is a team up is if DeSantis is Trump's VP. Do you think Trump would accept? I, I see it as the I other way think. around that DeSantis wouldn't accept the VP spot. When he feels like he has Yeah, I don't ambitions. think DeSantis has any reason to accept. But I, I can see Trump realizing that that's a ticket to victory. He obviously needs a replacement I, VP. DeSantis is very popular. It works you out You mean for Trump, Trump picking DeSantis? Yes. Yes. I don't think... I, I, I get it's conceivable Trump could pick DeSantis. I think it's very unlikely. Trump wants a, a loyal person. I mean, he's going to pick the most loyal, the person who flatters him the most. He's going to pick a Carrie Lake type person, if that is the reality. He's going to pick someone who has nothing but praise for him. He said, you know, it's not necessarily personal, but it is personal. Like, that's what he believes. It's very personal. So someone who went after him, and, and especially he's coming out of the Mike Pence situation. Mike Pence, who seemed totally loyal to him, but he feels betrayed by because he wouldn't do what what was required of him at the very end. Yeah, but 
DeSantis isn't going after him. DeSantis is parrying all of Trump's insults, I think, very wisely. I think we talked about this last week or the week before. He's simply deflecting. He's not saying Trump's name. He is taking the high road, as it were, which, frankly, is, I think, both politically advantageous for him as an independent political actor, but also leaves room open for there to be I mean, look, some— It's hard to predict what Trump will do. So is it possible he would offer DeSantis the VP slot? I guess. It doesn't seem— the most in keeping with how Trump thinks, to me, it's possible. DeSantis would be crazy to accept that. Does picking, um, does picking Pence seem in line with what Trump thinks, or does that Pence seem like a, a decision? Pence does that seem a like a decision that was? Pence was a flatterer. Does that seem like a decision that his advisors probably suggested? The advisors probably suggested him, and Pence was acceptable because he was he was going to be he was totally deferential to Trump, and he was going to paper over all the ugly aspects of Trump and, and put a nice, respectable face Look, on Look, there was a moment when Ted Cruz and all of them were going back and forth with Trump, and he was telling them their wives were ugly and calling them everything but a child of God. And they all turned that around once Donald Trump won and became—I don't know if you would—I would use the word loyalist, but they, they stopped the bickering, and they bent the knee. And I can see a world where—look, Ron DeSantis has such strong— a strong possibility of doing it on his own, that you can see the disincentive for him wanting to join up with Trump. He's created this whole personal brand to create space between him and Trump and appeal to moderate Republicans who are tired of all of the shenanigans. However, he's not been battle-tested. He's not been on a national stage. There are things about him that a lot of people are looking at and saying, mm, is this going to fly well in a public sphere? There's other contenders that are going to get in the race. He's walking around in those knee-high white boots the, and seeming kind of uh, I mean, the, weak the, the, at the, the podium. Picking, the picking DeSantis would occur after a series of primary battles in which Trump defeats DeSantis. So it's going to be ugly by that point. Like, yeah, there's but, no way for DeSantis to bow that early. that true of the 17 people or however Well, I know, but he didn't pick any of them. He didn't pick primary. Ted Cruz. He didn't pick any of those people who are still— I know, but I don't even—I don't know necessarily Pence. if those people were going to help Donald Trump as much as DeSantis. Nobody was clamoring for the Trump— uh, uh, Cruz ticket, the way that they are actively clamoring for a Trump-DeSantis ticket. Those other people who were running against Trump in 2016 represented an old version of the Republican Party that voters were clearly rejecting in their choice of Donald Trump. DeSantis offers a version of Donald Trump. There's actually a lot of simpatico there. He's just friendlier and cable-ready. Cable Which is why I think he can beat Trump in the primaries, but, and then he's going to I think someone it's else. I think it's possible. So that's why I'm saying, I, don't like, think there's gonna be I understand DeSantis' disincentive from wanting to do it. But if anything changes, if his electoral liabilities become more apparent, I can see some advantages for him looking up with Trump if it's basically a guaranteed victory, because that's that's the dream ticket as far as so many conservatives are, are concerned. Moreover, well, I very much see the advantages for Donald Trump. I don't think it's a compel. I think DeSantis is smart enough to know that there are—Trump's been beaten. He's not getting more popular. DeSantis, I think, can beat Joe Biden. I mean, and it's, it's going to be close. We're a pretty, you know, evenly divided country. It was kind of close last time. I don't think— I don't think either want to be second fiddle to the other. And they're, and they're both kind of right to think that. If Joe Biden is on his game and sticks with populist themes like last night and is able to be folksy and normal and engage mm -hmm. with hecklers and turn the tide in his favor and do all of that, it's not clear to me that Ron DeSantis has that capacity. Trump does in this weird sort of way. It's not clear to me that Ron DeSantis has that capacity. And I'm not, I'm not counting him out by any means. I'm just saying that I see opportunities for their union. And I'm very curious to see what the audience 
what has to say about this. Yeah. Do, have you been hearing Trump DeSantis let us know in the comments? Is this something that you would, would appeal to you? Or you, do you want these men to kind of go at it? I think their there's own? a ceiling to Trump support, and it's not getting any higher. And it, it's, we've had the DeSantis. high watermark. That's for, why he needs DeSantis. All right. We, we'd like to also note before we wrap that we reached out to DeSantis' office about Trump's new claims and have not heard back. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Things got a little spicy at last night's State of the Union. A C-SPAN camera caught an exchange between Senator Mitt Romney and Congressman George Santos. And though it's inaudible, a CNN reporter tweeted that Romney told, DeSantos, uh, told Santos, quote, you don't belong here. Reporters hounded Romney after the address and asked his thoughts about the embattled congressman. And here's what he said. So can you repeat that? Why, do you, why don't you think he belongs there, sir? He said he's a sick puppy. What do you no, mean? no, no, I didn't say that to him then. What do you, but that's yes, what you say you, now. You just said you don't belong here. Yeah. Why did, why did why you want to say that to him? I didn't expect that he'd be standing there trying to shake hands with every senator in the President of the United States. It's, uh, given, it? given the fact that he's under ethics investigation, he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet instead of uh, parading in front of the... Uh, president and, uh, and and people coming into the room. Did he have a response to you? Look, Did he respond? He, say, he says he, uh, you know, that he embellished his record. Look, embellishing is saying you got an A when you get an A minus. Lying is saying you you graduated from a college you didn't even attend. And and he shouldn't be in Congress. And uh, they're going to go through the process and hopefully get him out. And uh, but he shouldn't be there. And, and uh, if he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. Santos didn't take too kindly to those remarks, and he lobbed a jab at Romney for his failed 2012 presidential bid, tweeting out, Hey, Mitt Romney, just a reminder that you will never be president. Really taking the high road. See? <laughs> Respectability politics, Romney, is not a square I had on my bingo card <laughs> this year. I am— He's really going for the respectability politics support. I mean, he does it well. He seems genuinely offended that Santos would like disgrace the institution with his presence, which you know, like I, I guess I understand. It's just you don't hear a lot off the cuff from Mitt Romney. He's not a guy who's just like flying off at the handle and saying things that are inappropriate, or you know. And it's just it's it's interesting that he. I don't know. So I mean, he yelled during January six. He yelled at. Uh, I think he was yelling at either Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or something. He said, "This is your fault, guys. You did this." Well, it's the same thing. And then he got up there and gave a speech saying, "This is all Donald Trump's fault." and it's, it's, I'm going to be happy to vote for his that's impeachment. That's the exact same respectability yeah. issue where he's protecting the integrity of the institution as he sees it against insurrectionists as he sees it. And it's 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 funny that, that would, when if that's the thing that gets him riled up. I mean, we talk about this with Democrats all the time, that they care about procedure and decorum. And the thing that they really hated about Donald Trump was that he was impolitic and rude and embarrassing to the institution. And so many of us are on the, on the left, we're like, that's the least of our concerns. We don't care if someone's rude or bawdy or they didn't like Bernie for the same reasons, right? He didn't wish people happy birthday. You know, he didn't, you know, wear the right kind of suits. He was slouchy in his sweaters, all those kinds of things. But that's, people love a certain kind of authenticity, but it's, it's weird for the genuine, sincere outpouring of emotion to come over, like, protecting the institutional rigor. Um, and, it, and it seemed like what he was really offended by was George Santos trying to shake hands with Biden.
I mean, I, I don't know if it's president. just about. I, I hear you on. Yeah, the the sanctity of the process and the con that all gets very obnoxious. They're out there. They're violating our rights. They're 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 voting to do ridiculous things. They put their feet on Nancy Pelosi's yeah, who desk. Cares? Right? Who cares about all that? <laughs> but I will say that there's something about like you know so many of these characters. You wouldn't hire them to like man the cash register at your grocery store. They're like. They're utterly untrustworthy, unscrupulous people, and yet they're representing millions of people in this country. And, and that is kind of offensive, that the most crooked, corrupt—I mean, Santos is exceptional only that his lies are so— Hilarious and exaggerated and obvious, but we've talked about all the all the misconduct, all the all the financial misdealings, yeah, all the enriching that is part of the institution that that, that should be criticized. But but some at some point it feels like these are the worst of the worst, and so yeah, I appreciate Romney calling out. But that's kind of my point. I think the opposite is true. DeSant uh, sorry, I keep calling DeSantis. Santos's crimes are so much smaller than the average crimes. And theft by people in Congress. What he's, he was charged with some kind of uh, larceny in Brazil or whatever. Like, what did he steal? A few thousand dollars. There are people in Congress who've been fleecing the American people for millions of dollars for decades. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi and, and the rest of them doing insider trading. Like, well, that's that, what I was just saying. No, but it's, it, the frustration is is that DeSantos is the one that's attracting all this ire, even though his crimes are so much smaller in scale. They're weirder. They're more personal, but they're smaller in scale than the average cookery that goes on in Congress. So, you know, Mitt Romney, like, I appreciate you got to be in your bonnet, but where is all of this energy when it comes to the the, the Pelosi Act, the Stop Insider Trading Act, you know, or, or somebody? Well, I don't other... know. I don't know how he what he said on that. He might support it. I don't know. Yeah, I I feel like if he had erupted uh, on the House floor or in the halls of Congress uh, talking about. Uh, how uh, unconscionable uh, insider trading is and how Nancy Pelosi doesn't belong in Congress, we would have had a new cycle about that. But, you know, that ire is being reserved for George Santos. Again, not to say I mean, that he's he deserved it. But he's politically it. savvy, too. He earns himself a lot of plaudits from maybe not from the left, but from Democrats more broadly and from the media, et cetera. Um, it, a lot of it is the respectability type stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just... It's funny that given the political route, like overall, he would probably have, he has one of the highest, would have one of the highest favorability numbers for any Republican, not among Republicans, but among the general population. But he could never get to a general election. Like he is, to is too toxic to the concerned parties voting in the GOP. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting how he would, he would be a, like he would be a very popular general election candidate, but it could never happen again because the realities of the partisanship in, in, uh, in both parties. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, look, it, it was it was closer than we remember in 2012. There 2012 moments, was a little closer. If, if he didn't put his foot in it in a couple of big ways, the makers and takers remark, the binders full of women, although the, that wasn't even that crazy. The media just kind of ran away with it because they were— Oh, that, yeah, the, that was, that that was a non-troversy. That was so stupid. <laughs> non-troversy? Yes. Is that of your coinage, or is that just what I haven't that's, heard that's yet? That's a Robbie word. Nice. It was so dumb. Uh, and he was running. Uh, Barack Obama was, you know, one of the all-time great campaigners. Uh, campaigners. Um, so he was. He was up against. He was up against the king, and he did pretty well. He, yeah, it, it was what it was. And it was a hard time. It was. There was. Things were generally okay. By today's standards, well, things were very okay. It was, it was interesting. Occupy was happening. Yeah. Which 
was an interesting foil for someone like Romney, right? So, like, I think mm -hmm. Barack Obama was getting some juice from this idea of there being a, an, an economic populist revolt, even though, you know, he wasn't really on their side either. But in contrast to Romney, who was, you know, a Bain CEO he came who was across pictured with all the bags of money in the yeah. lobby of the very institutions that had just caused the financial crisis, it was a, it was, it was a tough political context. Well, and he picked Paul him. Ryan for his VP, who was the leading yeah. voice for this whole cut entitlements thing, which is which <laughs> Trump showed the Republican Party is not politically popular. Right. And um, it's worth noting that Bernie Sanders did float a little run in 2012 because Barack Obama also yeah. had threatened to cut entitlements and said he would run if, if, if Obama did do that. I mean, I think uh, a, a Romney campaign that ran on issues that were a little closer to Trump, especially on entitlements, but had the temperament of a Romney would have been extremely formidable that yes. would be extremely formidable still yes it's just that the people who have the who, whose policies match the political demand tend to also have these kind of obnoxious personality traits that make them or they're like so deferential to the election stuff the your Blake Masters your Carrie Lakes yeah. your Doug Mastriano's that they can't said, get elected I've had a front seat at uh, at the table where the American people have been screwed for decades mm -hmm. I've seen exactly how corporations preserve benefit for themselves at the expense of the American people. And, you know, I'm ashamed on some level to have been a part of it. But because I know how well that works, I want to be prepared to use those skills to fight for the American people. That was, right. That, that's the you know, less just, crude version of Trump's pitch, which is like, I know how badly y'all have been getting screwed. I've been participating. I was screwing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, uh, more rising. More rising after this. Yeah. A visibly annoyed Don Lemon delayed a commercial break on CNN this morning, revealing another display of the rumored tensions between him and his co-hosts, Caitlin Collins and Poppy Harlow. This is about two minutes long. Just watch. President's son in some of their shady business dealings. Right. That's why we're there concerned about Biden. No evidence of that so far. I understand you have questions about Well, we have evidence it. that they've influenced Petal, that they've always used the Biden... But not in relation to the classified We don't documents. have any evidence of the classified documents, but we're investigating that. Okay, Congressman Cumber, we're out of time. Unfortunately, we have a lot more questions for you. I know you have a bunch of hearings this week. Thank you for taking time to join Thank us. Thank you for morning. having me. All right. Thank you. That's going to be that's the time that we're in, where facts are sort of flexible. And that's why just, we got Caitlin Collins on the Hill fact-checking in real time. It it's was a great interview. Citing incredible sources, like citing the New York Post as a credible source and saying that facts are, it's just, I can't believe that we're here. Caitlin, that was a, a great interview. All right, moving on. Um, anyway, well, now moving on, because that's, listen, that's a big issue when it comes to the American, hold on, please, with the music. That's a big issue when it comes to the American people. The American people are going to have to suffer through all of this stuff from election deniers to people who don't believe in facts. We don't have a shared reality. And now it's taken center stage to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, a an election denier, a conspiracy theorist, a QAnon sort of influencer or supporter presiding over the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. It's a sad day for America when that happens, and it's a sad time for us when we have to deal with that. And I also think, and that was the point I was trying to make, is why it is critically important to constantly and in real time fact check, right? right? Yeah. And say, but the, for example, Merrick Garland appointed the special counsel, as Caitlin said, for both Trump 
and Biden. Are you going to treat these things the same? The same as going back to special counsel. I'm not sure if it was the same kind. You and I were talking about it for Bill Clinton yeah. when it came to Ken Starr. Was that effective and what it's not? Well, it's not. But I think there should be equal treatment by all. If you're going to appoint a special counsel for the former president, then you should appoint one for the current president yeah. and possibly for the current uh, the, the vice yeah. president and what have you. So here we go. We'll be right back. Ooh, cringe. CNN released a statement to mediate about the alleged uh, mediate about the alleged tensions between the show's hosts. It reads, "The Post account is widely overblown and two months old. Don, Caitlin, and Poppy were friends before they were co-anchors, and they remain friends today." No, I have to stop you here, Brian. <laughs> this can't go on. I have to give a special the lies of the. <laughs> you have to put your Don Lemon glasses back on, Robbie. Oh my God, <laughs> They're very similar. To your Are they? Well, he looks, he looks, shame. he's well-dressed, man. Yeah, I like the suit I mean, combo. Look, he looks great. For shame. Um, you know, For the, shame. the way this is being framed is like a story about the tensions between the hosts, almost like sidesteps what feels like the bigger issue here, which is Don Lemon's politics. Yeah. This weird defensive political. He said the New York Post is not a is not a legitimate outlet. I, I assume we're referencing somewhere here the story, which again, real story. Everyone's decided it's real, so he's still going down this. Uh, that was not legitimate journalism. You mean the Hunter Biden, the Hunter story. Biden story. I mean, it, it could be that, but liberals generally <sighs> speak. Look, I, do I think that the New York Post is the best paper? In the world, no. Do I think it that it often focuses on weird, purient cultural, social issues and has weird, inflammatory headlines? And is it the newsiest thing that ever happened? No. But it's a mainstream newspaper that a lot of people read. And trying to base your argument off of these attacks on the authority that are being cited, it's so weak. It's just such a weak way to try to make your point. And it also truly misunderstands his audience. He's in New York talking to a New York audience. It's one. Of, it's, I think it's the most popular. One of the most popular daily papers in the in the in the city. Who are you trying to convince right now? Everybody who already agrees with you. He comes across that he just loves the sound of his own voice. Yes. Uh, he's someone. He's a monologuer. He's someone who wants his own show. I think not to share the spotlight with uh, Poppy or Caitlin. Uh, he's not been sharing it very well. Yeah, he's he's incredibly smug, and, and, and he was look, making it sound like you shouldn't even do that interview. I think that was part yes. of the bristly. But he's saying like this was inappropriate to interview a Republican yes, we're, we're who has different ideas. A Congress, yeah. So we're spreading that it was adjacent to the we're spreading misinformation by even talking yes. to this person, and that's ridiculous. And I'm sure it was a, we just played the the end part, of it, but she pushed back in the yes. part we showed. So it wasn't it clearly wasn't a softball interview. No. Um, if anything, it was probably harsher than. I bet a lot of interviews they do with you know Russiagate peddling Correct. deep state agents and Democrats, but but fine. Uh, you know he he has some uh, he, and he and what we saw James Comer said was fine. But he was saying yes, we have concerns about the influence peddling. We haven't proved it. We have other concerns. That's why we're investigating them, et cetera. And then Don Lemon was like, oh no, we we can't be doing this. We can't be doing actual journalism. Yeah, and in, in making that argument, he also threw his co-host under the bus, and that's what the other woman was trying to say. Like. She did a great interview. She pushed back. Wow. She did her best. She did what we're here to do, which is journalism. Don't don't undermine the integrity of the segment that we just played. People of Don Lemon's ilk think journalism is preventing audiences and readers from learning information. They think it's gatekeeping information. They think that's what the job of journalism is. Yeah, and you were, I mean, it's, it's interesting the dynamics over on a, on a channel like, uh, channels like CNN and MSNBC, because it, it, it's, it's, they have created a fortress of unilateral thought. 
And it's not that they don't have Republicans on the show. In fact, you were mentioning while we were in break that one of these two women used to Caitlin work for Collins, she Daily was a Wire. For the, da the Daily Caller. The Daily, Daily Caller, Caller, sorry. A conservative news publication. That is fascinating to me because again and again and again, you see that there is there like kind of superficial, like technical ideological diversity at these kinds of places. But the organizing principle is everybody has to just hate Trump, hate populism, basically be a neoliberal. It doesn't matter if you're neoliberal on the right or the neoliberal on the left. And not to cast aspersion on, on the female co-hosts And be deferential here, to law enforcement. Because at least the female co-hosts were trying to do some journalism and do their jobs. But it, it, it's always remarkable to me that you get this kind of siloed political approach that is exemplified by Don Lemon, I think, precisely because they are so not used to hearing anything mm -hmm. outside of the envelope, including from the left. Well, former Fox News anchor and host of The Megyn Kelly Show, Megyn Kelly, weighed in on Don Lemon's behavior, tweeting, I have co-anchored with the best of them. Never has a colleague so disrespectfully tried to correct my interview on the air or mansplain. That is what it was. It was mansplaining <laughs> to me how I did it all wrong. In front of the audience, no less. CNN, how much longer are you going to allow this to go on? Because there's also been reporting about uh, about Don Lemon being furious with Caitlin Collins in particular for interrupting him or, or clashing with him or something. It, it, so there, maybe maybe I talked about this with Baccia. Maybe it wasn't you, it was Baccia. We mm -hmm. talked about um, reporting that during a commercial break, Don Lemon just unloaded on Caitlin Collins, just screamed at her in front of the whole staff, which is not something you do. Don't like you don't yell at people in front of this. Don't yell at people in general. It's like a workplace issue. So he was previously with Cuomo. Was that his who or Anderson no, no, Cooper? No, no, he was. Uh, who was who was Don Lemon's uh, evening co-host? Wasn't it him and Cuomo joking through the whole? Pandemic. I thought he would join. I thought he was a correspondent who okay. would join in. Sorry, a correspondent. Yeah. yeah, but that was his, his sparring partner. It does feel a little to me like. It's patronizing. He does feel like he's talking down to his co-host. And I wonder if he, he thinks of himself as the solo lead of a night show who has banter with a co-equal person like Andrew Cuomo or, or mm -hmm. Anderson Cooper, who are also, so, or were at least, solo hosts of their own shows and basically feels like uh, it's stooping too low to even be here. Because that's, that's, that's the how it attitude. That's how it comes across. Yeah. It's definitely how it comes across. Yeah. You gotta have respect for your co-host. I'm, I'm glad we can model such exemplary behavior here, Robbie. Yes, we're very well behaved. <laughs> very responsible here. Respectful, respectful dialogue. Tomorrow on Rising, we will be back with you to discuss the big news of the day, the news of the Thursday. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are, of course, available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also on Roku and other streaming services. So check us out there as well. See you later. Hope you have a good one. Bye-bye.